Well, last week, uh, we went through a pretty dense chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8, and there was a lot of stuff in there. But at the end of this chapter, Paul came to the radical conclusion that if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. And this was the attitude uh, that caused a few problems for people in Corinth because by him giving up his rights, many thought of him as a weak and kind of pathetic leader. Uh, He didn't assert his authority, assert the knowledge that he had of the freedom he had in Christ around. He didn't throw his weight around like all the other leaders. Instead, he was seemingly meek and and kind of timid in his approach to Christian freedom. Uh, Now, Corinth, it was a place where throwing your weight around, asserting your dominance and showing off this authority was kind of the norm, particularly among leaders, uh, philosophers, spiritual gurus and the like. And so for Paul to so quickly and easily give up his rights, the thing that he deserves, well, this is seen as pretty pathetic. Uh, to some of the Corinthians at least. But if you remember, if we cast our minds back to chapter 6, we'll be going a long way here because we left off that uh, in term 3 last year. Uh, It was the norm among Corinthians in general to assert their rights. Uh, In Corinthians 6, they were absolutely in love with their rights to the point where they were willing to take one another to court on a regular basis and basically sue the pants off one another even in the inside of unbelievers. Even Christians participated in this because the infringement of their rights was so critical that they had to do this. You know, if the coffee was too cold, splash it in the face, go take them to court. Do whatever it takes to assert your rights, even in front of unbelievers. Their rights, they mattered in many ways more than anything else or anybody else. Uh, The idea of personal individual rights, it was so ingrained in this culture that you can understand why Christians who suddenly understood the gospel and had this knowledge that the meat sacrificed to idols, well, it was nothing. It was just meat. Well, they're the types of people that would walk the streets with a giant beef shoulder hanging out of their teeth, arrogantly looking down at Christians who were mortified at this sight. In fact, the Christians were so obsessed, so in Corinth, they were so obsessed with their rights that that Paul's stance of loving the weaker brother, it had led some even to question his authority as an apostle. 9.1, Paul writes, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? The implication being, um, yes, I am. Have I not seen our Lord Jesus? They're all rhetorical questions he's asking them, and the answer is, well, of course you have. And this is where, this is kind of the launching pad where chapter 9 bursts onto the scene as Paul answers the question of just how far he is willing to go and on how many fronts he's willing to give up his pretty significant rights, I might add, for the sake of the gospel in Corinth, even if it means having his reputation dragged through the mud. From verse 19, if you have your Bibles, have a look. Paul makes his thesis absolutely clear. He says, Though I am free I belong and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Yes, I might look weak to you. I might look foolish and stupid from all the world's standards. Yet in this weakness and self-sacrifice, there is actually great strength and great discipline as a Christian. 
Now, if you skip to the last paragraph of the chapter, Paul, he compares himself to an athlete, right? He compares himself to someone who's running to win the prize, someone who's disciplined themselves to the point of considerable self-sacrifice. He says everyone who competes in the games, well, they go into strict training, and they do this to get a crown, one that will not last, but, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly, I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body to make it my slave. So that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Uh, You'll notice there Paul mentions, quote-unquote, the games. Uh, In Corinth, every two years, there was an event called the Isthmian Games. Now, you don't need to know how to pronounce that. In fact, you don't even need to know what that is except the fact that it meant that every two years in Corinth, the place would be flooded with the fittest and strongest athletes from all around the land. And here, Paul's using an illustration that would have been very, very tangible to them as they just look out their window and see these people expressing utter discipline to basically keep themselves at the peak of their physique for the games. This would have been... They would have seen all the rigorous training they put themselves through. They would have seen the mental stamina that these people had to compete. And I don't think it's a stretch for for us to just see this even today or we think ahead to the Olympics in 2032. We know that anyone who has their eyes set on these sorts of things that want to be the best at something, they go through so much to get there. They'll often wake up at ungodly hours of the morning. They'll keep themselves to incredibly strict diets, so no 7-Eleven coffee or meat pie from the servo, unfortunately. They train themselves hard to have the mental stamina to push through the hardest of barriers. They can't even afford to waste time often on recreation and mindless entertainment. Uh, The best athletes even, if we go a step further, they're generally pretty optimistic. Uh, They stand up under significant amounts of stress and pressure to perform. And the greatest of them all, which I think is one of the hardest things, is they remain humble. The greatest athletes don't blame others when they make mistakes, nor do they take all the credit when they do really, really well. It takes an incredible human being to have the kind of discipline we see in the Olympic class of athletes. And for Paul, he's saying, it's no different being an apostle of Jesus, believe it or not. He he says he trains himself as hard as any Olympian in order to discipline his body and his mind and even his soul to endure all things for the sake of making Jesus known in the world. In fact, Paul highlights that uh, living for Jesus in Corinth specifically has cost him more than it has at many other places, more than it might seem at first glance. So in verses 4 to 6, for example, Paul highlights that he has not made use of many of his rights in ministry. He says, don't we have the right to food and drink? This is something Jesus said they had the right to. Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles uh, and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, which is Peter? Do you know that Jesus' brothers were married? Do you know that Peter was married? It's here in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul goes on, or is it only Barnabas and I that lack the right to work for a living? Is it just us? And he's throwing out a rhetorical question for them. And the answer is, yeah, of course he has these rights. And yet, Paul deliberately doesn't make use of them in Corinth specifically. 
And it's not because, for example, the Corinthians are unwilling to pay him. Uh, It's not because they can't afford to have him or anything like that, believe it or not. Uh, In fact, they were more than willing to pay him. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 9, you can see him talking about their utter generosity and their their eagerness to do this sort of stuff. Uh, The Corinthians, for all intents and purposes, were actually quite a generous bunch of people. So the question is, why is Paul not willing to accept financial support from the Corinthian church? And the answer, well, it boils down once again, for him being all things to all people, so that by all possible means he might win some. You see, by not accepting financial support, Paul was setting himself apart from just about every other form of leadership in Corinth. And it might take a little bit to to understand this, because in Corinth, a good leader uh, who was anybody of any significance in the city, they were usually pretty well off. Uh, People would throw money at these sorts of spiritual leaders or these philosophers. Um, A good way to think of it is is to think of it like this. If, If someone wants to send their kid to one of the top universities, maybe UQ, you know, Harvard, you know, think, think really big universities, the amount of money that parents outlay for their kids to go there, but then they brag about it because these colleges give them status. There's, there's a certain privilege that comes with spending that money and sending them there. So the money you're pouring out, it was just another way of reminding everyone how great the university or in the place of Corinth, how great this teacher really was. They weren't afraid to splash the cash. But unlike all the standard gurus in Corinth, Paul, he bucked this trend. So he didn't want to accept any financial gift, even though from a biblical standpoint, he had every right to take one. In fact, Paul, uh, he uses a number of verses. That's all the little text on the screen there. You don't need to read it. It's more just for effect to see how much he talks about this. He spends a number of verses justifying why he is more than entitled to receive a living from the gospel. Paul spends all that time arguing from both a logical standpoint, he uses some reasoning in there, but he also uses a biblical standpoint as well about why he does deserve to receive his living from preaching the gospel. Uh, One of the illustrations in there kind of hit me a little bit when I think about uh, John and Tommy who joined the army. Can you imagine, right, if they enlisted in the army and the army said, oh, right, you have to pay for your own gun now. Oh, you've got to pay for that tank that you're going to be driving or or that airplane you're going to be flying. You know, it's only $100 million, but we'll we'll give you a loan for that. You've got to fund your way through the army. Be insane. Paul uses uh, the illustration of owning a farm. Now, I don't own a farm, uh, but I do have a passion fruit vine that's doing pretty well. And I couldn't imagine, even if I picked up all the passion fruits and used them on the farmer's markets, I couldn't imagine not keeping a few for myself and just enjoying the fruit of the labour that I put in there. Planting this thing, cultivating it, watering it, fertilising it. I'd be crazy not to enjoy the fruit of my labour, literally in that sense. And the same goes for gospel ministry, which is why we want to promote gospel generosity. It's actually why we want people like Andrew Brown and Daniel, thanks for coming, coming here and talking about UQES this evening because the worker is worth his wages. So the one really big thing I want to get clear here is that this isn't the norm for Christian ministry for a preacher to deny their right to be financially supported. Paul is saying this is the exception to the rule. 
In the words of Paul himself in verse 10, he says, whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. Yet, in Corinth, to be paid and uh, the amount that you were paid, well, it became a matter of status and pride. There was something tangible in that that the people could see. I almost feel like if you weren't a guru with gold chains around your neck and rings on your fingers driving your souped-up Porsche around the city streets of Corinth, then you kind of were effectively a nobody. Don't quote me on that. I'm not sure. But what I do know is that money was a real status thing over there, as with sex and everything else. But here, Paul, well, he's copying criticism now because he clearly doesn't understand this. He clearly, he's obviously not read the rules of the game. He doesn't know how to be an apostle in Corinth. Yet, ironically, Paul did know the rules. That's the whole point. Yet he made a conscious decision not to follow these social rules. He made a conscious decision not to take money from them and associate with their methods and models of determining status and privilege and having influence. And by doing this, he immediately places himself at the bottom of the social pecking order when it comes to leaders in Corinth. In fact, he kind of went below the bottom because if you read Acts 18 verse 3, we see when Paul arrives in Corinth, the thing he does to make himself make ends meet is he becomes a tent maker. He works with his hands And no one in Corinth, if you were a leader and you were seen doing manual labour, it's the equivalent of scrubbing the toilets. No, no teacher would ever degrade themselves to such a level that Paul did. You know, an apostle? He, He can barely be called an apostle. Look at him over there doing that, making tents with his hands for all. And so we read in verse 3, Paul says, This is my defence to those who sit in judgment on me. Paul is being judged, at least by some in Corinth. And they were wanting him to prove the authenticity of his apostleship. And Paul says, well, the authenticity of my apostleship is is demonstrating that it is not me in my influence or status that actually builds the church. It is the power of God to change hearts. And this is true if you think back to the beginning of Corinthians. Uh, This was really the thing that Paul wanted to show them, that, that the foolishness of God was wiser than even the highest wisdom of man. That the weakness of God is stronger than the strongest athlete competing in the Isthmian Games that year. He's saying, look around. The church is growing despite your wisdom saying that it wouldn't. It's growing despite the wisdom of the world saying that I had to be like all the other leaders in Corinth. Again, if we kind of flip back in Corinthians, back to chapter 2, this is exactly what he's talking about. Paul writes, I do have it up there, he writes, my message and my preaching, they were not with wise and persuasive words, basically not like all the other leaders, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might rest on not on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, I used to think that this demonstration of the Spirit's power, maybe it was some kind of miracle that he performed. Maybe he healed some people there. Maybe there's some sort of spectacular sign that he did. But what fits best in the context of 1 Corinthians 
is this demonstration of the Spirit's power is God's power to change hearts. You see, humanly speaking, nobody would have thought it possible that a weak, empathetic man like Paul could plant a church in a place like Corinth. And yet with all human wisdom saying that that a church plant here under Paul's authority would fail, the demonstration of the Spirit's power is shown that it didn't. In fact, it's thriving, and all glory goes to God at this point. For his power, and through him, the church was established and grew in a place as godless and as debaucherous as Corinth, the church made itself. In fact, back here in chapter 9, this is the basic argument that Paul uses to prove his authority as an apostle. So keep this in mind. He says in verse 2, Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He's effectively saying your very existence as a church is proof of the work and wisdom and power of God through me and my weakness. So, in a nutshell, for all intents and purposes, Paul, he he had the markers of one who carried the authority of God in the very fact that denying all these things that the world said he needed, the church still exists in Corinth. And it exists under the leadership of someone who was so incredibly weak. And yet their existence is proof that he is an apostle He has been sent from God, sent by Jesus, in fact, because God is the one at work, not Paul. And now, if Paul is an apostle, if he is sent by the authority of God, this meant that he had every right to ask for food and drink. He had every right to ask for financial support and and to have all the other privileges that that came with this. And yet his conclusion at the end of chapter 9, it's staggering. In verse 12, he says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, this is talking about his financial uh, aid here. We didn't use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And this is where it all lands. When all is said and done, Paul is he's absolutely sure he's free in Christ. He is 100% free. He's free to eat the meat. He's free even to take a wife for himself. He's free to ask for financial support. And yet, for the Corinthians, he foregoes many of these rights. In fact, he willingly has his reputation trashed in the sight of some in order that the integrity of his witness and the genuineness of his love for his people and, more importantly, that the power of the gospel message he carries would be clearly seen. The gospel is so critical that for Paul, the giving up of so many of his rights, disciplining his body to make it his slave, this has simply become his lifestyle. It's almost like this this is just his way of life. He's used to this. Yes, he's free in Christ, just like we all are, but he's also understood in a very real sense what it means to take up his cross and follow Jesus. So the question is, well, what does this mean for us? Uh, not all of us are Olympians. Uh, not all of us are on strict diets, which we'll see in a moment when we head down and go eat dinner together. 
Yet Paul, he is leading by example here when it comes to gospel witness. He's saying that we should all run the race with discipline, driven by a deep sense of love for the Lord Jesus as well, believe it or not, as one another. Always asking, where can I lay down my rights for the sake of winning you to Christ? The end of chapter 9, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. First thing that came to mind, if you guys have seen Forrest Gump, he's famous for his running. He wants to run, doesn't know really where. He gets to the end of his driveway, says, oh, I'm going to run a bit further, and he runs to the end of the street, and then I just kept running, and he runs to the end of his town, and he ends up running to one side of America, sees the ocean, goes, but I wanted to keep running. So he turns around, (laughs) runs all the way back. It's almost the textbook of running aimlessly. But I think it needs to be asked in in this day where we are just constantly dulling our senses. We live uh, in this kind of numbness where everything we do is done to help us avoid strict training, right? to help us avoid uh, the realities of needing discipline or maybe even just avoid the realities of life in its truest form. In this day where we saturate ourselves with Uh, social media and endless entertainment, numbing us from the the real present needs of the people around us to hear the gospel, I think it's appropriate to ask each and every one of you, where are you running aimlessly? In this text, we, we see Paul's priorities clearly on display. He doesn't care about his comfort. He doesn't care about his leisure. In fact, he doesn't even care about his status or his reputation. He will willingly be dragged through the mud if it means bringing people to Jesus. And I think this chapter forces us as well to ask one more question. Well, the gospel mattered so much to Paul. I want to ask for you, what matters most to you? Where are you running aimlessly? And what matters most to you? These are pretty big questions. Uh, The questions, I think, if you can remember them, or I'll remind you if you like, to ask one another down as we eat dinner or even after the service. Talk to one another this evening. Challenge one another to find where, where do our priorities lie? What do we really care about? As we think and talk these things through, what I'm going to do is uh, stop here. I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we'll sing another song as we finish up. Heavenly Father, Lord, in your wisdom... Uh, you are able to change hearts in ways that we never thought possible. Lord, please be at work both here at KPC and at UQES and as we see all around the world, Lord, bringing people to their knees in humble repentance and reliance upon the death and resurrection of your son Jesus to save them. Lord, help us as we seek to live for you on this earth to put away the things that distract us from running the race. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.